Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Claire Gibson spent many of her formative years in West Point, New York, where her father was a professor at the United States Military Academy. That experience gave rise to her new novel, Beyond the Point. It follows a group of women Army officers in their time together at West Point and through their careers. Claire calls it The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants meets Zero Dark Thirty. Claire, thank you so much for for being here, for, for being willing to talk about your writing, your process. I'm so excited about Beyond the Point. It's been so fun to see that come out here thank in the last you. little bit. Yeah. And um, I, I get the... I get the impression that you're a pretty disciplined writer. Ooh, I'm glad you get that impression. (laughs) It's all an act. Um, I try to be. You know, things have changed a lot for me in the last year and a half um, in terms of just the way my life looks because I'm now a mom, which I wasn't during the writing of my first novel. Uh So discipline is a lot less about, you know, staying to one path and more about, like, keeping keeping a regimen where I can keep writing. You know, it doesn't look as um, identical each day the way it did, you know, a couple years ago. Yeah. But I do try to stay disciplined. So... What does that mean? So you said you... Right. What what distinction are you drawing here? Well, so um, having children stretches you. I don't have as much time. Mm -hmm. And so I still think I'm disciplined, but it doesn't look the same. So when I was writing Beyond the Point... I would get up every day and I would write from about eight in the morning until about noon. Mm-hmm. And and then in the afternoons, I had other jobs, other things that was were helping me make money. Now, when I'm writing, um, you know, I only have childcare two days a week. And so mm-hmm. those days, I still write from eight to noon because <laughs> uh-huh. that's my habit. That's your thing. Yeah. Um, but then on the other days, I'm trying my best to write during nap times and during other little windows that I have. But it's not as um, regular. Yeah. And so it doesn't feel as disciplined to me as it did a year and a half ago because it's not daily. So uh-huh. I'm I'm hoping to move more toward a daily habit because I think that that's um, just like anything. I think the more you do it, the more habitual it becomes. And even those days off that you take make it harder to sit back down and open the, the page again. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. yeah I know what you mean. <laughs> so I'm looking to... to find a way back to daily practice rather than just a um, two days a week. Yeah. So. Now, I can't remember where I ran across this. I, I think it was um, I think it was Madeline Lingle quoting somebody else, and, and that person said, um, when you skip one day, you lose three days. Oh, 100%. But, and that's yeah. terrifying to hear that. But thank you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but at the same time, hopefully, like, every day you skip, like, if, if you skip five days, hopefully yeah, you haven't lost do the 15 math on days. That, I, I think, yeah, I think it just means it takes two days to get back. But, uh, <laughs> no, I think you're right. I'm, or Madeline was right. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's also a beauty, beautiful thing to, to be a mom and to get to spend those days with Sam now. And so um, I'm... It, it's just kind of finding a new rhythm. Yeah. But my dad was in the army, so you know I saw what discipline looked like and uh-huh. what it meant to get up early. Mm-hmm. That's adulthood. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of the answer for me is going to be waking up earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it is, is it one of the situations where 
Sam wakes up so early that you can't beat him up? I just don't want to. Just don't want to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting there though. I, yeah. It will be. It, I think that's the answer. Yeah. 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 What about? I mean, what about you? What's your discipline look like in your life? Well, I, whenever I talk, talk about discipline, it always has to be do as I say, not as I do. Sure. But um, but it's definitely um, involves waking up early. What is what does that mean for you? Because early to different people, like I wake up at five thirty already, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and some people raise their eyebrows at that. And I'm thinking probably it means five o'clock soon is going to be my new wake up. Uh-huh. What about for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm usually out of bed by five or five thirty. Yeah, and um, then I just I'm just not yep. a person who can be productive late at night. It's just not my thing. Same. Yeah. I I love the, I have friends that are those people. Yeah, and um, I think that's beautiful. And I wish I was sure. that person in some ways, but. It's just yeah. not how I my clock works. <laughs> yeah, well, especially when you have kids, you, you know, no matter how early you can get up, you get up. It's hard to get, get up enough hours before the mm-hmm. kids get up. You mm-hmm. know, it would be nice to put the kids down at eight and then have several hours of, of work after that, but that's just not how my rhythms go. I close down. Yeah. I don't think I think I'm worthless after two o'clock, honestly, in the oh. afternoon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I do. I try to do emails after two o'clock. I try to do. Um, you know, household chore. Like I try mm-hmm. to just kind of do mindless things yeah. after two o'clock, but really before two o'clock is my best mm-hmm. work time. Yeah, and I think that's good. As an artist, you have to figure out when I'm I the most creative. When is my critical voice the quietest? And when can I have you know protected time mm-hmm. to really focus? Yeah. So tell me about your inner critic. What is what is your inner critic? What's his mm-hmm. or her? Mo. It's a she for sure. It's a she. Yeah. <laughs> um, she is. Gosh, she just wants to be the best. Like <laughs> she just wants to be better than anybody else. Yeah. Um, and God bless her. She. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think you know I did some counseling over the years, particularly when I was writing Beyond the Point, and my counselor had some really helpful tips and tricks for me. Um, kind of teaching me that that critical voice does have a role to play sure and that she is um really deep down wants it to be great Mm -hmm. and that is why all of the nitpicking in my head comes um but a lot of times i don't need that voice until a lot later down the road um and so and now that I've been working with you on some of my writing, Jonathan, uh-huh. I often think about you, not in a critical, negative way, but um, I think about the things I've learned from some of the classes that you've taught, and I evaluate what I'm writing based on some of those things, which at times can be helpful and at times can hinder uh-huh. the flow. Because really, yeah. if you can just start writing and get sentences down, it doesn't matter if they're good or bad. It's just getting the raw material, mm-hmm. kind of like if you're making a pie and you've got the eggs and the flour and the sugar really just writing some really crummy sentences right. is kind of like getting your ingredients out yeah. and then you figure out what needs to get cracked open mm-hmm. so yeah well i'm glad to hear that your um your inner critic doesn't now talk like me i'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad it's still a girl well she's a girl and then and then there's you on the other side so <laughs> you're stereo. a good team oh, yeah. good. <laughs> um is um um it it, it is so important though I often say the way I sort of manage the inner critic is is to to it's it's not about silencing mm-hmm. the inner critic. It's about saying, "Hey, I value you, inner critic, mm-hmm. and I need you to 
go occupy yourself for a little while, and right. then I want you to come back, and I really want to hear what you have to say. Yes. And for whatever reason, that makes it easier for for my inner critic to to go when when he knows he's valued, mm-hmm. you know, and he's going to be invited back into the room. Have you ever recorded? Have you ever read your writing out loud to yourself, or recorded yourself reading your writing? Uh, you mean like early at some point in the? No, I mean I've, I've only done. No, I mean after it was completely done and it was sort of out there for consumption. I've, you know, I, mean, I, I recorded the, the Wilder King books and audio books, but mm-hmm. um, no, I've, I've I've never never done that. I'm kind of curious because I did listen to the audio book for Beyond the Point, uh-huh. and listening to it, I was so. <laughs> this is going to sound really bad. I was proud of it. I was yeah. like, oh, this is actually. This is really, I'm enjoying it, you know? Uh-huh. And so I wonder, because my critical eye, when I go back to read it as I'm writing it, uh-huh. I break it apart so much as I'm re- rereading it back to myself the next day or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, and so there's a part of me now, I'm wondering if part of my discipline might become reading it out loud, recording, recording that, it. and then listening to it. That's interesting. Because I feel like if you listen to it... Um, the ear might be a different vessel than the eye. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it it makes sense. I think my question is maybe that's what, just a huge. What, waste what's of your time. goal? But what? <laughs> no, but but your goal in doing that is to feel better about what you've written. To I think it's to yeah maybe feel better about what I've written or maybe um, hear what parts ring true and what parts yeah. feel off. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I yeah. just found I found the listening experience to be more uh, encouraging than I had anticipated. Uh-huh. I anticipated listening to my novel back and just like cringing the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you didn't, but, but you weren't the reader. I for didn't that. read it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I, that that had never occurred to me before. That's an interesting thing. I, I think you know I would be concerned about listening to it as a way of making oneself less rigorous. Oh, like giving yourself a break. Yeah. So, oh, okay. You know, to, to say, it sounds okay. This, this looks weird to my eye, page. but it sounds mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Well, your reader's still looking at it with fair an eye. No, that's a fair point. Yeah, um, that's good. But as but as you, um, but I love the idea of of that as a way of achieving some critical distance. Some distance, right? When you did yeah. that with your hands, you kind of separated your hands just now. Yeah. That I think is really what I'm after. Yeah. Especially to give myself permission to move on to the next scene right. in the early drafting process. Because yeah. sometimes I can get stuck where I'm just rewriting the same scene or the same chapter over and over and over again. And if I could just get it down, listen to it, feel like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that, that kind of gets to it. Let's move forward. Yeah. I think that could be helpful. But I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking through, would yeah. that be a helpful Yeah. A question I often get is, how do you know when you're done? Because you can always right. keep tweaking. And I wonder if that is a, a possible method toward knowing when you're done. Well, and people say, I've heard other writers talk about the importance of reading your work out loud to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, they're not recording it, but same process of like listening to it in addition to just mm-hmm. writing it down. But um, yeah, that critical voice is real. And I was just talking to someone this morning who said they had written a lot of things but the two questions that came up in their mind were, number one, um, who cares? And number mm-hmm. two, or who is going to care? And then number two, um, who ge- what gives me the right to be the person to say this? And 
the person I was speaking to this morning said that those questions were what had shut him down and stopped him. And I kind of pushed back on him like, you're not unique. Like Those are the Uh questions that every writer or artist, I think, hears. And I think it's the ability to to either answer those questions or not answer them and move on anyway, move forward mm-hmm. anyway. But And so who cares then to, to treat that not as a rhetorical question? Right. But as a a real question that has an answer. Right. Exactly. Like this I'm trying to write this new book that is going to be a little bit about adoption. Mm-hmm. And I've really thought through who is going to care about this. I'm hoping to write it f- for a specific person being basically myself five years ago, Mm -hmm. if I had picked up a novel about what I was about to live through, (laughs) Uh you know, would I have felt um, understood and known and Mm -hmm. uh, encouraged? Yeah. And that, I think that's helpful to have an answer. You, um, because you have adopted recently, Mm -hmm. you have a, I say recently, what, two years ago? Year and a half. Year Mm -hmm. and a half ago. um, You are part of a community Mm -hmm. of you know, so so you're mm-hmm. talking about a situation here where your audience is not an abstraction, right? But actually, a community of people mm-hmm. who you can write to serve, and um, and because we've adopted, there have been more people that have come around in my life that I knew in college or that I mm-hmm. knew at another time that have come knocking and have been like, "Hey, tell me about what it's like." And we're in the weeds, you know. What does it look like? a few yards forward. And I think those are conversations we've been having a lot, my husband and I, with other couples. Mm -hmm. So it's very fresh and I see their faces and I know the struggles that we all have been going through. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A conversation I've been having a lot lately with writers and I can't remember, I may have had it in a previous episode of this podcast. Now I can't remember (laughs) which conversation I've had where. Sure. But, um, But the idea is so important of of thinking in terms of your audience, not as America. Right. <laughs> or, you know, but as mm. you writing to serve your community mm-hmm. um, to the extent that you can. Yeah. And um, I just think that it's so incredibly important. And I love to hear you talking about about this with, with adoption, with, you know, you're, as you are working through this book, you are thinking in terms of people, mm-hmm. actual people with faces and voices, mm-hmm. um, including you know, five years ago, Claire. Right. And I think that that, for me, maybe because I'm a narcissist, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe um, it's help. And also because like, at the end of the day, what if nobody buys the book? That's the other question Mm -hmm. that comes to your head. And so if, okay, let's, let's answer that rhetorical question. If no one buys the book, I still wrote it for my former self. I still wrote it for, for me and Mm -hmm. for, um, the experiences that I went through and in a way to pay homage to that person who survived, mm-hmm. you know, and that sounds kind of weird, but I feel like it is so cool to write a book and and kind of he- do some healing, you know, mm-hmm. writing Beyond the Point was healing for me because one of my major life regrets was always not going to West Point. Mm-hmm. And so I used that feeling of, man, I wonder what that would have been like, or should I have done that? And I poured it into a book, and I lived that experience of what it would have been like by Mm. writing it. And I now can walk away from that regret and feel like 
yeah, I didn't go to West Point, but I, but I did something, and I, mm-hmm. I experienced it in a way through mm-hmm. writing, and mm-hmm. that um, feels like a, a win. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The second question you said the the inner critic asks mm-hmm. is what gives you the right or the authority to to be the person to write this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. That, that question. Again, I mean, p- people say write what you know. Mm-hmm. And so I had the authority to write about West Point and women in the military, not because I was a woman in the military, but because I did have some content knowledge about West Point having grown up there. Yeah. And I answer that question by going back to the first question, which is I have the authority because I'm writing this for these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I may not be the most expert in the room, but I'm doing it as an act of service. Yeah. So it's less about who gives you the authority and more of I'm, this is an act of service to those people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that's my answer as a writer. I've learned that now by writing a book that was inspired by true stories. I think that that works for me. That unlocked something. Like if I'm doing this for someone else, mm-hmm. then it helps silence that second question a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think a question that is related to authority or, or where we get our authority mm-hmm. as writers from is by giving the reader something they couldn't get for themselves. Hmm. That's good. Talk more about that. Well, no, you're the guest. No, I want to learn from you. <laughs> I'm like, this is why I'm here to learn. <laughs> uh, but the, the origin, um, you know, originality is not something we can pursue directly. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you know, we we can tell the truth about what we've seen, mm-hmm. and trust that what I've seen, the combination of things I've seen, is unique. Yes. And um, and the way we put things together, mm-hmm. you know, is is unique. And you know, even if I and even if I had a twin who was who saw everything I saw, even then mm-hmm. my perspective on that would be slightly different from um, from the the twin. So so. Our authority, in many ways, I think, does come down to: Am I or am I not giving the reader something they couldn't get for themselves? So, whenever right. I, if I were to write a a detective story, mm-hmm. really, all I've got to fall back on is the same episodes of CSI that you've seen, <laughs> right? And I'm, you know, I'm a long way from having the authority to write a detective story. Mm-hmm. I might could get there if it was if it were that important to me. I could probably figure out some way to learn enough. Mm-hmm. That I could give somebody something, you know. Th- but when I'm, I'm dealing with with student writing, young, you know, college age people or younger, mm-hmm. um, I find them, f- you know, so often falling back on the same TV just shows I've seen, anyway. stuff, and, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's not, and it really feels like they don't have the authority to write about that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, when you're writing about, I mean, you're writing about West Point, or, um, but even I mean, that's a little too. That's a little too dramatic because, you know, because. Well, the thing, the way that I, I, that I jumped that gap in knowledge or authority, as you're calling it, is I recruited the mm-hmm. authority. So mm-hmm. I recruited the details. I recruited the stories. I recruited the concrete mm-hmm. that I didn't have in my own brain or in my own experience. Um, and so I do agree with you that there is certain experience that each human has just based on where their two feet are on the planet. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and you're, but. you're always having to, to 
walk that tightrope between, on the one hand, writing about experiences that people can relate to, mm-hmm. um, and on the other hand, giving them something they couldn't get on their own. And so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the magic, right? Yeah. yeah. I heard just the other day that, um, I think it was Seth Rogen talking to on a podcast, of all things. Um and he's, he's a movie maker? He makes movies uh-huh. super bad, like kind of raunchy oh, yeah, gotcha. movies. Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry, Rabbit Room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't go see them, I guess. I don't know. Um, but he was talking about the process of writing with scripts. And he said kind of about what you were just talking about, like balancing those two things of writing what you know, but also being relatable. Mm-hmm. He talked about hooking people with plot, but then handing them a story and how... Basically, you know, plot is a device to kind of like hook people in and get them interested in like, oh, what's going to happen next? But then you actually hand them a deeper, deeper meaning. And the deeper meaning is the part that people connect to, whether they've ever Uh gone on a heist or, you know, smoked weed, which a lot of his movies, that's what he talks about. But like um, whether they've done any of those things, the story, the deeper meaning is what they connect to. Mm. And I was like, yeah, Seth Rogen, that's interesting. I'll take that (laughs) and run (laughs) with that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. One more time. What's the difference between story and plot? Plot, I guess, is what happens and story, the way he would talk about it is yeah. plot is what happens and story is the, um, like the emotional arc yeah. of what's happening. Yeah. Like the deeper. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Well, that's the first time I've heard it. I don't know if I agree. I haven't. Uh, I've been mulling over it the last yeah. couple of days. And I, for me, I think it's true. I remember when my first novel what some of the very early drafts was were very plot driven mm-hmm. but when i would read through the manuscript it would feel like you're just getting dragged through plot so and then mm-hmm. this happens and then this yeah. happens and then this right. happens and so it was missing story yeah yeah, yeah. which is the emotional arc uh-huh. that kind of pulls you along and makes you root for the people as they're going through these different trials. Yeah. I guess plot is something that you could draw a, you could make an outline of, and I'm trying to get from this point to this mm-hmm. point to this point. Um, and so, yes, I am going to agree with you. What I would also say is plot is one way to draw your reader in, and plot is the way Seth Rogen draws his, sure. his readers, his, his viewers in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there are stories that you realize I love that story, and there was very little plot there. Right, that's um, true. You know, and I think that's that's so that's also freeing for a storyteller to know that this doesn't this doesn't all depend on plot. True, that's um, true. And um, I'm I'm trying to think of a story I read recently um, that I just love. I wish I could remember what it was. Now this this is not going to be very helpful. <laughs> um, this is what show notes are for. Right. There's a but I remember reading it, loving it, and then mm. realized there was no plot here. I, mm. I just love this because this character is so compelling. That's interesting. So for me, I I kind of disagree. Like I rarely find myself attracted to stories where nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Like I need that move, that urgency, that feeling of urgency is important to me when I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise. It's too tempting to do something else for me. Uh huh. Maybe because I'm watch Real Housewives. Or... Oh, stop it! <laughs> you threw that Sorry. back in my yeah. face. <laughs> Earlier, he found out that I have watched that at some point in my past. Um, 
I'm sure someone listening to this has also happened to see a Real Housewives episode. <laughs> uh, maybe. You may be right. I don't no, know. Maybe not. Maybe everyone <laughs> listening to Rabbit Room loves just literary masterpieces. Uh, but yeah. I do find that I like the um, the pull of, mm-hmm. you know, w- what is going to happen next. And I care about this person mm-hmm. um, in literature. But I'm getting better and, and more um, disciplined, <laughs> for to bring yeah. that word back, to commit to stories even if I don't feel that pull right away mm-hmm. as a reader as a reader mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. yeah okay so I want to hear you talk a little bit about how you get from um, um, you know beyond the point was based on interviews it was based mm-hmm. on you know you, you really did a lot of research on that mm-hmm. um, what did you what did you find as you were turning that big pile of facts that big pile of mm-hmm. you know reality into fiction well i found first of all that i needed a better organization system <laughs> okay so um i wish i could say that i have some beautiful file on my computer that has all of the interviews in a row mm-hmm. um and that's just not true they're all over the place in notebooks and recordings and old hard drives so um but i did find that Truth is better than fiction uh-huh. for me. Uh-huh. I don't know. Not just for you, for everybody. <laughs> I don't know if I had tried to write a novel from thin air uh-huh. about women at West Point. Like I, I couldn't have done that. There was no way that I would have been right. able to do that. And so it was really helpful for me to be able to have concrete details that I could go back to in case I got lost. Mm-hmm. And also just women that I could call yeah. when, let's say I'm writing a story or a moment in the book about Kuwait. I've never been to Kuwait. Mm-hmm. I could call my friend and say, hey, tell me again about Kuwait. I know I interviewed you a year ago, two years ago. Mm-hmm. I have the notes in front of me. I need more. Yeah. This isn't, you know, these notes aren't filling it out for me can you tell me a little bit more about what it felt like or what you saw as you're riding in on the bus you know and those details were crucial and critical and it brought the writing i hope i think it brought the writing to life more and now as a as now that i've had this novel come out um I i love that as a structure for myself the way that I think I'm going to write novels into the future is I'm going to have people that I interview mm-hmm. that then I can turn to during the writing process. And also those people that I've interviewed become the people I'm writing it for, to go back yeah, to that question. Right. Yeah. Um, and so what I found is it was super helpful, and also it created this kind of baked-in network of, of cheerleaders for yeah. the process, you know, because yeah. they wanted to see it come yeah. to life, too. Yeah. Um, so to, to return to Kuwait for a minute... Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I thought about is, as you were talking about calling a person about Kuwait, mm-hmm. is that I have a an idea in my head of what Kuwait is like, mm-hmm. and if I were to write that, this is getting back to what I said earlier about having the authority to write anything. Right. If I were to write what I imagine Kuwait to be, mm-hmm. it would be the same thing you already thought Kuwait was before you called that person. Right. And what you're really looking for is that thing about Kuwait that we. That would surprise expecting. you. Yeah. And that's when it starts to feel real. One, I remember one detail someone told me. There were two things that stuck out, even as I'm talking to you now, that re- came back to mind. One was that they had Kuwaiti and Iraqi bus drivers that would drive the soldiers and officers from the airport to Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And 
she, I remember one of the females I interviewed um, talked about getting on the bus and the bus driver was playing a recorded track of Arabic prayers mm-hmm. over the loudspeaker in the bus. Uh-huh. And she just had to listen to that as they were driving in. And it was just this rude awakening or welcome to her whole new you yeah. know, era, world. Um, and then the other thing she talked about was a woman walking on the side of the road in full, you know, burqa. Yeah. And just walking by herself in the middle of the desert. It's really hard to see where did you come from? Where are you going? You're just mm-hmm. walking along a barren road by yourself. And that picture, that image of a woman walking along the side of the road alongside this bus has really stuck with me because it's sort of an eerie picture to a Western mm-hmm. mind where you're yeah. like, that's a very unfamiliar sight. Yeah. And and kind of stark like yeah where is that woman going it's hot outside you don't even have a water bottle in your hand you know things Mm -hmm. like that that really stuck with me um about what these women saw and i never saw but i was able to put that onto a page Mm -hmm. that they now get to turn to and show their kids someday and say hey i went there and this is what i did when Mm -hmm. i was there which i think was cool for me to be a part of yeah yeah and so how about I want to ask you questions. Is that allowed? I don't know. Yeah, maybe not. We, we, have, we have a few minutes. <laughs> sure, ask me a question. Well, how do you, do you do research for the things that you've written? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who do you call or who have you called? Well, I mean, for, for the fiction I've written, um, I don't, I mean, I call geologists or. That, see, that's interesting. Or, okay. you know, biology. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in the, the natural world mm-hmm. and, and even though my, my stories are set in a fictional place. It's a, you know, it's a fictional place that looks a whole lot like. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that I I wasn't trying to you know, do Recreate. world building as in you right. know it's there aren't any animals there that don't actually live in Georgia and Florida. Mm-hmm. There aren't any trees there that don't grow in Georgia and Florida. And so I was just really, uh, I, w- I have a geologist friend who mm. I who was a, a unofficial consultant, and I just called him, and he always he always had some interesting fact that would turn out to be the key to the story wow that's cool yeah and so um and And that was and that was all part of a confidence that the the landscape itself contains Mm. stories Mm -hmm. and um i mean i I just i I just believe that Mm -hmm. that that the actual just just the way the god put the world together if you Mm. pay enough attention to this you know the way this tree reproduces or, or whatever, yeah. some something's going to come out of it. Hmm. Um, that's and really cool. uh, that's, it's not just that I had that confidence about the natural world. It's like what, I mean, I feel like if you just pay attention to, to the way the world works right. in interpersonal relationships or in whatever, you know, stories begin to come out. And I feel that way about the people that I meet. I feel mm-hmm. like I could probably talk with a person in the grocery store line and leave that conversation feeling like I should write a novel Mm-hmm. about that person you know I, I feel that way deeply that there really are stories everywhere and I'm I love that you find inspiration in the landscape I think that's that's uh, admirable uh, and I wish I paid more attention to to that world I, I kill plants often uh-huh, but yeah. um I I think that that's really beautiful and true yeah mm-hmm. and I was one thing I was interested in is you know the the idea of that particular landscape sort of telling stories um, as opposed to, you know, the Rockies are a little more glamorous Mm -hmm. than the river bottom swamps, swamps, Mm -hmm. you know. And I just, 
I wanted to, to tell those stories. I thought mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to sort of dig into those and see what see what happened. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, so you you talked about talking to somebody in the grocery store line, mm-hmm. um, and you for you interviewing is becoming an important part of the way you get stuff. Mm-hmm. Give me. Um, Let's let's kind of wrap up with some practical ideas about generating ideas through conversation. Sure. So, kind of what to ask someone? Yeah, I mean, are, are, there, are there questions that you ask, or there? So I kind of approach interviews kind of like a counselor. So mm-hmm. I find that um, it's better to ask a person to tell you a story mm-hmm. rather than to say, you know, to ask them specific questions. You know, when I mm-hmm. uh, earlier when I said I called and said tell me about Kuwait, mm-hmm. it was because I ha- was looking for something in particular. But in my initial interviews, um, I was way more interested in anecdotes mm-hmm. and in scenes yeah. rather than in general generalizations mm-hmm. or timelines from them. You know, a lot of the women wanted to walk me through their timelines, but in terms of where they were at what point. I know yeah. I graduated West Point in this year and then I went here. Like that stuff doesn't really matter for a mm-hmm. novelist. Sure. So I think t- treating those conversations like a counselor and really listening and really mm-hmm. caring <laughs> mm-hmm. about yeah. what they're saying and really wanting to get to know them first as a friend and then later, only like f- long time later as a novelist. Um, really being able to be emotionally available as you're sitting there across from them and talking um, mm-hmm. and listening to where they maybe stop short or they start to get emotional mm-hmm. and then they kind of close off yeah. and then, you know, gently asking to go a little bit further and, and ask, you know, I noticed that you choked up just then or I noticed you said something really hard and then you crossed your arms and got kind of quiet. Do you mind telling me why? You did that, like really watching their body language, because a lot of times when you're asking someone about something sensitive, they're not going to hand it over right away, nor should they. Right. That's right. Speaking of authority, right? Oh, do we have some? No, I'm no. I'm saying having the authority to ask (laughs) some of these questions, right? You know, and they and and not expecting that they are going to give it. Like you might probe a little more, and they still Mm -hmm. don't open up more, and that's okay too. Yeah. Um, that happened to me many times uh-huh. when we were co- having conversations. So having the humility to ask and not be offended mm-hmm. either direction. So yeah, um, I often ask, "Tell me something that would surprise me about hmm. blank." Mm-hmm. Um, often about people's work hmm. or their hometown. Interesting. People like talking about their hometowns. Yeah, I also like questions like, "Tell me a story about a person that you know." met you in a time of need Mm -hmm. or tell me a story about um, a time that you felt like you wanted to quit or that you were not going to move forward and Uh then why did you Uh stories where they defied their own expectations I think helped me kind of get to the bottom of their motivations yeah Um, so yeah and then I think just having tools that helped me do the recording and transcribing were really helpful Mm, Um, but in the end, I think it's just making those relationships that, whether or not the, the novel was ever going to come out of it, having those relationships be a solid friendship really mattered to me. Yeah. Um, and I think the women felt that, and then they were willing to be even more vulnerable. Yeah. 
Okay, last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are the writers that make you want to write? Which is different from who are your favorite writers. Hmm. Yep. I always say John Steinbeck. Hmm. And he's he's a writer that makes me want to write. And he's a writer that's my favorite writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love what he does with story and description and human motivation, human uh-huh. interpersonal relationships, all that. Um, writers that make me want to write. I, Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. You know, when I... Correct. Uh, yes, I know how much you love her as well. Um, I this is going to sound like a cheesy answer, but the Bible. Uh-huh. Can I answer that? Sure. It's like the the Sunday school answer. I I, I do read the Bible a lot, uh-huh. and um, gosh, I just find it so full of weird, seemingly rabbit holes yeah. and and interesting people that make. Yeah terrible choices and i just find it to be a really fascinating book that makes me think there is there's story everywhere Mm -hmm. and i like that the bible isn't um it's not just a dry narration it's not just an ethical document right it's stories about people's families it's stories about people's sex lives it's stories Mm -hmm. about kings it's it's all of it and it i really find it to be a motivating yeah. place to, to be reading. Yeah. That's right. kind of a cheesy answer, but it's no, true. It's not, there's nothing cheesy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's great stories. All right, Claire, thank you so much. Okay. Claire Gibson. Thank you and, for having uh, me. I, I cannot wait to listen to all the other interviews that you've been doing. There have been some great ones. I'm really excited that you invited me. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Mm-hmm. See you soon. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.